Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Fitness Podcast. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, it's it's mental, the last kind of, what are we at, episode Nick number 63, which is mental, and it's just going stronger and stronger. Uh, the guests that are coming up and the guest that's on today is amazing. I'm very, very lucky to have Rene McGregor on. Uh, so Rene is a leading sports and eating disorder specialist. A dietitian with 20 years of experience working in clinical and performance nutrition. She's worked with athletes across the globe, including supporting the Olympics, Olympic Games in 2012 in London, Paralympic Games in Rio in 2016, uh, the Commonwealth Games in Queensland in 2018. She is regularly asked to work directly with high performing and professional athletes that have developed a dysfunctional relationship with food that is impacting their performance, health and career. Uh, when not inspiring others with her incredible work, Rene can be found running the mountains, which we spoke about off air, and chasing the trails, most likely training for a crazy ultra marathon. Thank you so much, Rene, for coming on today. Thank you for having me. It's exciting. Uh, it, I know it's uh, Friday evening, um, so probably want to be outside. Hopefully it's as nice today as it is. Whereabouts are you? Where are you about to, where about to you base? I'm actually sat in my kitchen in Bradford Avon and I've just come back from a dog walk so it's all good. Friday is my slightly more chilled day so um, I'm a little bit more relaxed than I was yesterday. If you tried to do this with me yesterday it would not have happened so uh, yeah it's all good. <laughs> I, I feel blessed that you've got out for a walk to clear the head beforehand. Yeah. Uh, so Rene for I know I kind of gave a brief intro there for anyone that isn't familiar with your story and how you got into this field can you explain to the listeners how you got into the whole thing? Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess um, I started way back when uh, I had done a biochemistry degree, which I loved. Like, I'm quite a science nerd, to be honest. And um, I really enjoyed biochemistry. I liked understanding how the body works at, like, a cellular level. Like, I just find it quite fascinating. Um, but I'm also quite a good communicator and I had an amazing mentor at uni and he was just like I think you'd be wasted if you just sat in a lab so um he was the one who actually encouraged me to think about going down the dietetic route and so I went off and did some work experience in the local dietetic department and I've always had a slightly clinical brain I suppose but I didn't want to do medicine just because my parents wanted me to do medicine so I didn't want to do it because you know that's the rebel in me and um yeah, I just thought actually this could be good. This this could be what this could work for me. So I ended up doing a postgraduate in dietetics immediately after my my undergrad, and then I was just really fortunate. I got a job. Um, my first job was at St George's in London, which is a massive teaching hospital, obviously. And I just had a really good grounding. You know, like I did two years there where I learned so much. Like it's a bit like a it's a bit like a medical medical qualification like you end up doing probably about five years of just rotations in different subjects in different clinical conditions so you get a really good feel and understanding of 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 the clinical condition itself because you'll be going on ward rounds with with doctors and consultants and you're looking at bloods and you're working within a multidisciplinary team so it's really good grounding you know in terms of um learning about how to work with people as well as sick people um so i did that for about seven years and i eventually specialized in pediatric dietetics but specifically in kind of adolescent eating disorders so kind of 
having done a, a real mix of different qualifications and uh, during that time that's kind of you end up do you do an you do a qualification in pediatrics as well so you know just to make sure that you are qualified to do that so it's a long long haul <laughs> like you know seven years in I finally was kind of like okay I'm I'm doing what I'm doing now and um yeah I guess I, I suppose what happened was that I was working with a number of eating disorder clients within the NHS and I was getting good outcome but as we know the NHS is under a huge amount of pressure and there are a lot of constraints working within the NHS and I think the final straw for me was that I'd worked with one particular client and she was a young 15 year old who'd who'd come in in a really severe way like she was literally hours from death, to be honest, when she was brought in. It's been very poorly managed out in the community, and then she'd been brought in as a last resort onto the ward. And it was like a Friday evening, five o'clock, you know, like your bleep goes off and you're like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to be here for a while. Um, just sorting out tube feed and, and obviously being really mindful of the fact that this young girl hadn't been eating for several weeks, and so you didn't want to go into refeeding. So I actually stayed in the hospital until quite late that night because I wanted to check the first set of bloods that came through and make sure she was okay and you know it was it was I, I mean I've always been really passionate about my job so I've always given a lot to the people I work with um I guess like over the course of the weeks that she was in hospital we developed a really good relationship and she started doing really well and then crunch time time came about 20 weeks later when she was allowed to be discharged into the community and um we were told she couldn't continue working with me because her postcode meant that she didn't qualify for funding from the hospital to to get outpatient treatment. And I think for me, I was just like, this is not this is not why I do my job. Like I genuinely care about people and if I can't continue my care then then why am I in the NHS? Like why am I doing this job? That's uh, mental. mental. Yeah. Yeah, and so I suppose it kind of, you know, these things happen, right, in our careers. These things happen. You come to a crossroads and you have to make a decision. And I guess at that point it was like, okay, what am I going to do? Um, and I think I'd, I'd, like I said, I'd been working in the NHS for about seven or eight years. I was, I was definitely not sure if it was where I wanted to stay. Um, I didn't want to change in terms of dietetics, but I just didn't know if it was where I wanted to stay. And I've... I've always been a really sporty person and I was running more and more at this stage. I was running with a running club and I was got, like, a lot of my friends were asking me questions about nutrition and sports nutrition and I was just like, do you know what, maybe this is a really good time to just have a natural break and start doing, doing do another degree and just see what happens. So that's when I ended up doing my postgrad in applied sports nutrition. Um, so I took a break from the NHS, basically. I was just like, do you know what? I'm, I, I need a break from, from working in this clinical field, and I just want to go and do something a bit different. And so I got my qualifications, <laughs> got my first job literally the day after I got my qualifications. I know it's, it's kind of really, like, I have been really fortunate in that in that point of view. Opportunities have come along right at the right time. And um, the job was with the GB Gymnastics, uh, Rhythmic Gymnastics Squad. But the reason I got the job was because I had a clinical background as well. And that's what they wanted. They wanted somebody who who could potentially work with potential eating disorders, but also um, do the sports performance aspect of it. So that's kind of 
what I did and obviously they, they did well and I guess you know one thing leads to another you do a good job you get another job and then I got the roles within wheelchair basketball and wheelchair fencing and obviously went out to Rio with those guys so you know I did eight seven eight years of Olympic Paralympic cycles and um, it's hard it's hard graft like especially with the the wheelchair fencing and the wheelchair basketball guys I, I ended up doing a the nutrition but I was also doing quite a lot of the team management so I was away a lot I was traveling a lot um and I guess you know we did really well in Rio which was fantastic but you know when you come back and you're like I should be happier than this but I'm not and I guess it started to make me think and I had a massive change in my life at that point as well I came back from Rio and I separated from my um, then husband at the same time and so there was a lot of change going on and I guess it makes again that crossroads it makes you stop and think what is it that you really want really like what is it that you're that you're you know what's going to make you tick and I guess I've missed aspects of the clinical stuff because it's what I'm really good at um, and through my time in sport what I'd realized was <laughs> eating disorders were rife right there's there's dysfunctional relationships with food are hugely problematic and I you know I was getting more and more athletes who were not within my remit as such asking for me to support them because nobody else was able to give them the support they needed and so I started seeing some clients on a kind of you know just in private on a consultancy basis and once Rio was over and I had a bit of headspace from from everything I was like do you know what this is what I want to do like this is this this is what I need to do because there's nobody doing this really. There's nobody here who understands the clinical aspects of an eating disorder and what you need to look for physically as well as kind of the psychological aspect of it. And there's and and also who understands sport and understands athletes and understands how the sports performance world works. And so I started just kind of seeing more and more clients. I haven't really had to do much myself in terms of kind of marketing myself it's just been word of mouth and I left working with fencing and basketball and just set up my own consultancy so I guess that's kind of how I fell into this and it was also it was also because I I felt really uncomfortable working in in the really high performance sport world because it was always about performance and while that's obviously critical, I was finding it harder and harder to put performance above health. You know, like from my point of view, you, the athletes need health before they can perform. And I was, I was told on several occasions, you care too much. And and I am. I'm a compassionate, caring person. Like I can't, I can't move away from that. That's just who I am. No matter how much I try, I can't. That's just who I am. And I guess I was starting to find it. I, I, I just found it hard. I was I wasn't being true to my core values working in that area, and I suppose like you know as we say sometimes it's that that moment of change in your life that makes you take a step back and look at everything and evaluate everything. And I was like, yeah, I'm not doing this. I'm gonna I'm gonna do what's true to me. And I guess that's how I've ended up where I am now. Is that what started off as a kind of very small part of my job has now become pretty much 90% of my job um and 
yeah, I'm really happy doing it. Also, we set the clinic up officially, like the official clinic last year. Um, and, you know, in some ways it's great to be able to say this, but in other ways it's quite sad. But the numbers, you know, we've had a 40% increase in referrals just in the last five months. And so the clinic's only been going 10 months. So, we, you know, in some ways it's like I, I feel pleased that I can offer a service and help people, but I feel incredibly sad that so many people are suffering. Um, and this is just individuals who, you know, who do sport and have eating issues. This is not this is not people with just eating disorders. This is the you know the combination of the two. And is it what's the kind of is it kind of more females or is it more males or what's the? Yeah, it's at the moment like we we just did some number crunching and at the moment it's thirteen percent males and eighty seven percent female. That's mental. Yeah. And on average like what age group are we kind of talking about so our average age is actually 16 to probably 22 um but we are also getting a lot of people over 40 you know it's kind of they're the two major demographics we're working with yeah it's quite interesting that's Um, mental that it's that it's at that that age um because i know i know personally from girls that i've that i have worked with as pts and they've had eating disorders and they've had them from when they were like say 13 up until like 19 but there's rare enough cases that are at the kind of the late 30s early 40s that's really really uh, interesting um, what's interesting about that that age group is majority of them did have eating disorders as teenagers that were never really dealt with and so all they've done is projected they've just kind of used they've gone from leaving their eating disorder in inverted comments behind and then using exercise as a way of control and I guess what happens is they get to their late 30s early 40s and realize that this is not a way of life and that's when they've been coming to me but also by this point there's there's actually very little help available so I think the fact that the clinic became available has meant that we've ended up with a lot of people that just haven't been able to get the support they've needed within the NHS and so you know they've, they've, they've come to us from that reason that you know from from that point of view the other thing to say to highlight is that the 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 younger group the, the 16 to 22 year olds I think there's like 60 percent of them have only had a maximum of four periods each that's mental um wow that's mental and that kind of i know we were kind of talking off air about one of the questions about amenorrhea um do you think women who are kind of a train who are training kind of both elite and kind of general population are changing the way they kind of feel themselves uh to kind of avoid amenorrhea or do you think it's becoming a lot more prevalent um and can you kind of explain what amenorrhea is for anyone that doesn't know what it is Okay, well, let's start with that. Like, so amenorrhea is what what the the, kind of the definition of amenorrhea is. Primary amenorrhea is is any female that gets the age of sixteen and has not had a natural menstrual cycle. And secondary amenorrhea is um, when a female who has had previous cycles has not had a menstrual cycle for six months or more. So there, that's kind of you know, and, and it's usually it's and it'll be for reasons that are not medical 
So, you know, you have to do a diagnosis of, by exclusion. So you check that it's not something like polycystic ovary syndrome or endometriosis or, you know, or, you know, any sort of other kind of prolactinemia or anything like that. You have to rule all those out. And it's usually what we call, it's why we call it functional amenorrhea, because it's usually related to the fact that the hypothalamus is, is kind of struggling because there's usually not enough energy in the system or there's some reason the composition of the diet's not quite significant enough to, to allow for the hypothalamic pituitary axis to work efficiently. So um, in terms of, um, I think what's interesting is, I think in the past, and even when I've been working within sport, it's, it's almost been... Uh, not from my point of view, but I know having worked with coaches and medical people within the field, it's almost been okay for females to not have a period. It's like it's kind of acceptable that um, it's like, well, you do sports, so it's kind of what we expect, which is, of course, completely wrong. And I, you know, it's one of the things I battled with actually in those eight years. It's one of the things I found really, really difficult because I would be shouting, saying, it's not okay for this girl not to have a period. It's not okay for this athlete to not have a period. And I'd often get met with, well, yeah, but what do you want us to do? Like, you know, for her to be the right weight, for her to do this, the, the, the performance we want, um, she needs to be this weight. And it's like, well, does she? Does she really need to be this weight? Like, you know, weight's just one element of performance. There's so many other aspects, and I think we can manage this better. But the problem is they want an instant fix. They want an instant, and they don't care about the longer-term consequences. And that was one of the biggest reasons I moved away from that very high-performance sport, because that's what I mean, is that health was secondary to performance. Um, so I think one of the things that's been really great is that more and more female athletes are coming out about the fact that they had amenorrhea and now look at them they're in a mess because their bone health is a problem and you know they mentally their mental health has also become massively problematic and and their performance has deteriorated i mean that's the fundamental thing that people don't realize and it's something that i've been doing a lot of education with coaches on is that if women don't have a menstrual cycle that means that they're not going to have good hormonal levels particularly things like estrogen and estrogen, if that's not available, if that's not around, if that's not in your body, then you're also not going to produce growth hormone, which is what you need in order to get the training adaptation that you're looking for. So it's completely futile putting women into an amenorrheic state because actually you don't get the results you're looking for at all. Um, and, and that's the bit that people don't understand. I think the other thing is that people don't understand that estrogen has such a big role. It's not just periods. It's it's your cognitive function. So obviously if you're, work, if you're in a sport where you need to be thinking clearly, which is most sports, but let's say something like gymnastics where you're on a beam and you have to be really mindful of, of where you're gonna put your next foot, you know, or your next footing, or you have, you're on the hockey pitch and you have to make a decision about where you're gonna, you know, where you're gonna send the ball next, your cognitive function is affected. Similarly, your proprioception is affected. Again, you think about ballet dancers, you think about gymnastics, you know, you think about those those sports where where that's so important, and you, and you'll see you'll have problems. And the other thing that people don't realise is that estrogen is really important for your bone health. You know, obviously that's huge, and and that's where I where a lot of people come to me is often it's it's at that point where 
they're getting stress fracture after stress fracture. So by that point, we've actually had quite a long time without a period. And it's, you know, that's the bit that's really hard is that if we'd been able to prevent it in the first place, we might have prevented some of these stress fractures. But, you know, and I, again, I think awareness is getting better, which is great. And so I think that's why the clinic is so busy because awareness is getting better. And a lot of women are going, this is not okay. I need to sort this out. And so that's why we are getting so many more females than males. I mean, just to say, male athletes get affected in the same way. It's just that it's not as obvious because their testosterone levels will drop and it will be the same aspect in terms of cognitive function, balance, mood, um, bone health. But there's the sign is, is a lot, you know, it's, it's very difficult to pick up. I mean, there are signs that you do notice that they do end up with less morning um, erectile function, but often levels of testosterone have dropped significantly for that to happen, almost too low. So again, it comes back down to kind of like, how do you, how do you monitor that? Um, so, so I think, yeah, I mean, we shouldn't, we shouldn't rule out men in this because they are equally as likely to develop issues but obviously with with females we have that absolute sign that their periods have changed or got lighter or stopped completely and and i think that's that's why i think the awareness around it is getting better which is good and is there anything from a practitioner side that you would kind of the process that you would in place put in place i know every female every person is completely different but is there a kind of a general checklist that you would go to and is there a general kind of tests and stuff and kind of protocol for you to kind of follow for those kind of steps yeah so i always do blood tests so we can see what's going on and i generally work with an endocrinologist who can kind of you know give absolute advice on what's going on hormonally for that that female and we can give them a lot more information then about you know why their levels are so low and if particular levels are lower then we can help them to understand that's because maybe of the training load or the training intensity so then that gives us some kind of good tangible data to help them to to kind of make those changes obviously we do a full assessment on their um, energy intake versus their training and also looking specifically at the composition of the diet because that's the big thing like a lot of people um you know, some people, some women are eating energy-wise probably the right amount, but what they're not doing is getting enough carbohydrates specifically around their training load. And that is one of the key things. Or what we're seeing a lot of are lots and lots of females doing fasted training, particularly that HIIT training first thing in the morning where your levels of cortisol are already high and then you go and do a really high-intensity session in a fasted state and you just whack those cortisol levels up even higher. And obviously, when cortisol is chronically high, it will block your hypothalamus. So then you don't have periods. So it, you know, it can be a number of different things depending on the individual. It could be low body weight. It could be low body fat percentage. And actually, your weight's okay. Like you know, it's it's a tricky one because everybody is so different, as you said. Like everybody presents differently. So it's about doing an absolutely complete overview of everything including their relationship with food and exercise because some you know there are a small percentage of individuals that present in clinic who generally just don't have a clue they just have no idea of what they need to to continue with the with the training load and you know general life 
expenditure that they need and they and actually they're very easy to work with because you can just you you give them the knowledge that they need and they go off and they do it and, and everything kind of falls back into place but majority of the people I work with have a difficult relationship with food and exercise yeah and I think like you you work on a, on a grander scale and you've had a lot more patients or clients than I have regarding it and stuff like that but what came up recently for a case probably about six months ago was that the girl one of the girls in question um i asked her before the episode could i mention her story i'm not going to mention her name but um she mentioned that she went to the doctor to kind of get the bloods done but the first thing that the doctor said was i'm going to put you back on the pill yeah which i'm going to get you to explain why that may not be the greatest decision of all time so if we think about what the pill is it's contraception, right? So that means it actually blocks your ovulation. It stops you from ovulating. So if you're somebody who doesn't have a period, is that what you need? You don't You don't want to stop your ovulation even further. And it just kind of lulls you into this false sense of security. And lots, so many women come to me and say, oh, yeah, I've got a period. And you're like, and almost you can look at their, you look at their nutrition plan really? And you go, are you on the pill? And they're like, yeah. I said, well, that's not a period. So if you're on the pill, it's a withdrawal bleed. That's not a natural period. And actually it disguises the fact that you may have low energy availability and amenorrhea because, um, because you wouldn't know basically. And that's the other thing that I'm finding is a number of athletes and individuals and females are coming to the clinic because they come off the pill, they kind of decided that they want to come off the pill, maybe they want to start a family, maybe they've just had enough and, you know, they just want their body to have a break from the pill or whatever it might be, and they don't get a period. And they're told, they go back to their doctors and a lot of the GPs say to them, oh, it's fine, it will take several, it can take several months before you, your hormone levels go back to normal. So firstly, there is no such thing as post-pill or post contraception amenorrhea there is no such thing i mean you may end up taking it might take six to eight weeks and often we say to individuals if you're going to come off the pill let's wait eight weeks before we do your blood test so then we know that your hormones should be back to normal whatever your levels are they'll be back to normal um so yeah this is something that a lot of people are being told that it's okay and so often by the time they come to us sometimes they've been off the pill for a year but they still haven't had a period and they've been told that's okay. And in that whole year, when they have not had a period, all these negative consequences are going on to their bone health, to their balance, you know, to their to their mood. All these things are being impacted. And so I think, like, if you look at the endocrine society guidelines, it does say very, very clearly the pill should not be used for um, cases of amenorrhea. It does say that. But I think, unfortunately, again, it's one of those things that it has been used for years and years and years, and and it's just kind of one of the, you know, it's just one of those things that we're, it's filtering down. There are there are some really great GPs out there who are really paying attention. I know I have a lot of GPs that follow me, and they they are changing their practice just from from the education that I've been putting out, which is fantastic. Um, and a lot of GPs are being really accommodating in the clinic as well in terms of getting bloods done and, and communicating with us and also, um, you know, actually providing the individual with the support they need. So, you know, not, not, it's not all bad, but I think it's, it's like everything It's just taking time because it's an education that, you know, needs to be done. 
And is there a certain time frame for someone to kind of make sure they've kind of got their cycle back? Is there a certain time frame that that person needs? Is it a couple of months or what? Or like, how do they know they've got their cycle back after having or after having amenorrhea? So we usually say three three cycles is a good indicator that the body is probably now back in balance. But what I will say to that is the body is incredibly sensitive. So in my opinion, this is just my personal opinion, and with my experience, I would say that it, really you're looking at a year, to be fair, to know, to really know that your body is is kind of back on track. I would say, you know, be mindful for about a year because everybody, every woman's body is slightly different and slightly sensitive, and you know, like, and and the other thing is that genetically also it sort of depends. Like I, you know. Personally, I mean, I did. I I had amenorrhea for eight years, and um, but I don't have to be very heavy to have to, to have regular periods. So I'm somebody that actually my body would have to go into quite a bad place for me to not have a period. But that doesn't mean I want to get to that place because lots of other things would go wrong in the meantime. So it's only one indicator that your body is working well. Like, I think that's an important thing to, to also add. And also there are other women who genetically may need to be a little bit heavier than they want to be in order for their menstruation to start because genetically that's how they are. You know, like I'm a very petite person. I've got, you know, very petite um, frame. And so I guess that's why. But I know when I've got other friends who are, you know, they're, they're broader than me, they're taller than me, they're not they're not big but they're just a different build to me and they need to usually have a slightly heavier weight than they want to be in order for their menstruation to start and that's just life unfortunately i think we were talking off air and we kind of realized when we were kind of talking about it was the likes of social media um do you think it's doing enough to promote positive body image or promote good food habits or do you think that it can be improved and how can it be improved i don't think it's good enough at the moment at all i feel really really strongly about this subject because obviously you have to remember that i'm working in this every single day so i am presented with with people every single day struggling with 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 issues around body image and um low self-esteem and a lot of it is coming not from Instagram and social media, like you can't, I'm ne- I would never say that it, it causes it, but it definitely contributes and keeps people in a really difficult place. And I think if we think about it, the images, the majority of the images that are being promoted on social media are either incredibly lean, fit individuals, or, you know, very thin individuals, or we have the opposite where there's a lot of kind of aspects of like, you know, embracing your curves and body positivity and, and, you know, and all that, which is fine. But where are the normal women? Where are the normal women who just kind of fit in that normal weight range for height? Like, that's what we don't see enough of. We don't see that. And I think from my point of view, you know, I've got two daughters and that's something that I've been really, really, really aware of is trying to promote really positive, strong female role models to them who are all shapes and sizes 
um, or would be counted as normal in terms of if you did, you know, you do your, your kind of standard charts or whatever. But they're all different shapes and sizes because I wanted my daughters to appreciate that no two women look the same and no two women need to look the same. And actually, genetically, you're different. Ethnically, you're different. You know, my girls are mixed race, so they look different even to me because I'm, you know, I've got an Asian background. I'm, you know, my parents are both Indian, but their dad is English. So they've got aspects of different, two different types of gene pool there that makes them different again. And I think, like, the one thing I would always say to everybody I work with as well is that you can't compare yourself to anybody else. The only person you can really compare yourself to is you, and and that's it. Like, you know, I remember, I remember spending my, my teenage years comparing myself to my peers and wishing I had longer legs and wishing I was like, you know, blonde hair because that's what was kind of like promoted as attractive. And I was this small Indian person with dark hair and I was very very small I had no idea that people were looking at me going I wish I was tiny as Rini because I because you don't when you have low self-esteem you don't think that but I spent so much of my teens and my 20s chasing this need to be longer legged which was never going to happen because I was never going to be taller than five foot two but you know that's kind of what you do and and now I'm like oh my god I can't believe I spent so much time and energy wasted on that when actually fundamentally a lot of it is about acceptance of yourself, you know, like internally, not what you look like. So I think with social media, there are some good role models out there, but there's also a lot of really negative role models. And I think one of the difficult things is, and this is this is maybe slightly controversial and maybe people won't like it, but I'll say it anyway, is, you know, we know that sex sells still, and there are a lot of women who will post in their crop tops and and gym kit and obviously then that means that's putting pressure on them to to look a certain way and promote a certain image i i mean i i mean i guess i struggle with that a little bit i mean i would it's not what i do as we all know um but i think fundamentally like there's still a lot of pressure um not just on women on men as well you know like more and more men are finding it you know, they feel that they have that pressure to look a certain way, to be more muscular, to you know, to have to have that triangle shape, and and not everybody's meant to be like that. I would, I would, I've struggled with that, um, and one of the things that worked for me was controlling what was going into my head and what was controlled. So I, I every every quarter, I would say I would do a social media audit. So if there's someone not positively affect impacting me or they're not giving me knowledge or I can learn, then I get rid of them. Um, and there was a there's a Irish influencer. She used to be a model. She's called Rosanna. I can't speak. Rosanna Purcell. Um, so she used to be a model when she was like 18, 16. But she was on a podcast recently, recently, and she was talking about when she was doing an advertising campaign. She said she was like the best she's ever felt and then straight after the shoot the person who was doing the photos edited her photo straight in front of her literally cut her legs in half got rid of her beauty mole that she has here cut her hips cut her and she was like this is just messed up so people do have to be careful of what they are consuming on social media if you are scrolling through social media and someone's giving you some sort of body issue or body dysmorphia they are only showing you the highlights. They're not showing you 
the bloating they're not showing you the real life like all of us get bloating and all of us feel have, have crap days but we have to realize that that is that they're just showing you the highlight reel yeah uh, and also i mean i'm with you like so sorry anybody who posts topless or without with in their crop top you will not be followed by me <laughs> because i just i just don't need that in my life to be fair so i think yeah it is it is so true like we do i think it's so important to realize that social media is just one aspect and one element of that person you don't really know what's going on behind the scenes you know we were saying earlier about we both don't generally post that much personal stuff on social media you know it's very much about education and i and i i feel i feel quite strongly about that because um because i think you know there's an element of privacy that i want to maintain from from my point of view um that said, you know, I'm, I'm still happy to talk about my running and my dog and, and various things. But when it comes to like my family, I'm probably a little bit more protective of them because I also feel that that's my, you know, that's my role to be protective because the more people that follow you, the more access they have to them. And I, and I, I feel quite protective about that, but that's my personal opinion. I'm not saying other people shouldn't do it. It's just how I feel. Um, so yeah, I think it's an interesting place, social media. Um, in terms, like, I think food, food is is also quite interesting. I mean, it's changed. Even in the five or six years that I've been on Instagram, food has, the food aspects changed. Or I just don't follow a lot of foodies. I'll be honest. I really don't follow that many people that are in nutrition just because I find it, I do find some people quite frustrating. I find some of the content going out quite frustrating, but I don't want to get into an argument with anybody. I don't want to kind of, I don't want to be somebody that, you know, is always there waiting to, to pick on someone because I know that happens to me and it's really not very nice. And I'm, I just don't, you know, I don't want to be that person. So if I just find it easy just to go, do you know what, let them carry on. I'm just going to do my thing and just keep promoting my message. And that's all I can do is, is keep doing what I want to do. But there are still some very, very confused and mixed up, um, mixed up posts and and images of food and I think where I really struggle at the moment more than anything is the kind of is all the people that are getting sponsorship by certain food products and then they are you know they're they're supposed to be regulated practitioners but they're then aligning themselves with a product and creating a, a a post around that to make it fit and it might not actually be 100% true and I find that incredibly difficult because it's something I would never do like I have companies pretty much daily contacting me and I always say no because as a dietitian particularly we and obviously we're regulated under the health health pressures council we, you know we have to be very very careful about what we put out and we could get struck off so from my point of view it's not something that I would would ever really do um there are some sports products that I genuinely use myself that I really like and I might say this is what I like because of this this and this but I'm not promoting it for them it's my choice to to do that but um but yeah I think I feel like that's where a lot of authenticity around food and the message around food has has disappeared and and that that does upset me I'm not gonna lie like it does because I think you've got young vulnerable individuals who think who look up to these people and they're like oh I should have that product because that's what this person has said to me and she's a you know 
whatever a nutritionist or he or that he's a medical professional or whatever it might be and and I and I, I feel like I mean I've, I've always said this and I'll say it again as soon as you have any sort of following whatever that might be you have a responsibility because you know you you don't know who's following you. You know, I've, I've picked a few people up sometimes just in a DM and said, you know what, be really careful about what you post because that affects individuals. And they'll say, yeah, but my following's not the same as your following. And so, no, I'm sure that's not the case. And I'm like, well, actually, it has come from one of my followers who also follows you that it's really affected them. And I'm not, you know, it's like I'm not I'm not going to protect every single person that follows me. But but fundamentally, I care. Like, it, it's important, right? It's I've just said how how many more clients I've had in the last five months, and it shouldn't be happening. We shouldn't have such a difficult relationship with food. We we just shouldn't. No, um, and I'm, I I don't like the whole call out culture that's out there at the minute. But there are certain celebrity endorsements that are out there from people who aren't necessarily in the fitness industry or the fitness realm that are getting paid to promote certain skinny teas or whatever like that and for anyone that is listening to those please do not buy off those asshats that's my term it's like i know that they're trying to make a living but ethically that's like karma is going to get them i do believe that karma is going to like not going to get them but like what goes around comes around if you are seen to be promoting absolute drivel it will come back and get you um and i completely agree with you regarding the foods and i know what happened what, what has happened to a lot of people is that there's like the lights of food porn on instagram and social media that a lot of people get a lot of food envy and they're looking at those people's food and they're kind of like it can drive people to almost as if they're like looking at a certain physique or a certain body and looking at their food and saying why can't i have that meal why can't i have this meal and that person's looking like that when they're having that food and yeah. that's it, it like the whole mishmash comes in together and it's quite scary uh, and that leads into the age-old advice of kind of everything in moderation with food i don't think like moderation seems to be very difficult but extremes seem to be quite easy for everyone whatever it is whether it's money whether whether it's life whether whatever it is can you kind of expand on this a little bit more yeah i guess like moderation's never been sexy right <laughs> put it that way and um it's not a very sexy word either to be fair um and i and i i feel like to a certain degree i really hope i've tried to change that aspect like you know i think you know you're you're very aware of my my quote about food should be treated like friends some friends you know uh, you spend more time with because they, they bring out the best in you and other friends maybe you spend a little bit less time with because they maybe don't always bring out the best in you and I think I've tried to find different ways of describing moderation um, I guess the reason why people go to extremes is because it's easier to a certain degree like if you make a decision you make a rule I'm not going to eat this that becomes your rule and it's very easy to just kind of to not eat sugar you know, to, to not eat gluten. It's like, I can take it out, I don't have to think about it, it's done. Whereas when you think, actually, I do want to have some sugar, but I don't know how much I should have. Like, I think one of the biggest problems we have as human beings is that a lot of us want certainty. We want certainty we're going to get it right. We want certainty that it's going to work out. And and yet, the one thing, like the, 
nobody has certainty about anything. The only one thing we have certainty about is at some point we will die, which is a really morbid thought, but it is true. And I guess like some of the things that I've had to work on personally, but also I work with my clients very much on, is being more comfortable in this space of uncertainty. You know, and, and kind of like the more you become comfortable with uncertainty, the more you actually can start trusting the process a little bit more because you could have everything. Let's face it, you could have absolutely everything. You could everything could be working out for you, you could be bossing life and then one wrong turn or something happens to you or you know like we hear about it don't we people will have everything and then they something happens and they get bankrupt I mean you, you just there is no security from that point of view and I think a lot of individuals with eating problems are looking for certainty and suppose when you have extreme rules it helps you to feel safe because you know if I, I just just remove that and it's easy I don't have to think about it you don't think about the longer term consequences of that or how it might impact your health or, or your mental health or any of that sort of stuff because let's face it if you start taking out food groups eventually you're going to basically isolate yourself because you're not going to be able to join in with social interaction and and you know and, and have connections with people and build relationships because fundamentally majority of our relationships are built around food and where would you say the the food stigma stems from for you know, the majority of your clients? Would it be the likes of the media? Would it be the likes of, say, parents or grandparents attaching a certain stigma from what they've had? They've been, they may have been yo-yo dieters all their life or whatever it may be. In your experience, where would people's food stigma generally be coming from? I think, I think if we take one step back from that and just like really focus on the fact that Often the people I work with, it's never really about food. It's usually about something a lot more complicated than food. Food is just the medium by which they are trying to express how they feel. It's it's the distraction from what's really going on for them. So, you know, like if we fixate on what we can and can't eat, we don't have to deal with the fact that we don't feel good enough or that we don't feel comfortable in our own skin because we're focusing so much on food it just it distracts us from it similarly when we go into when we do a lot of training we numb those difficult feelings so often when people have difficult relationships with food it's serving a purpose it's not really the food that's the issue however there are some very very deep beliefs that they create around food like carbs make you fat which is the one i hear all the time um now, I think majority of that has come from the media. It's come from, you know, somebody who has very little knowledge scientifically, but is very good at promoting a message and has basically dumbed down science completely. Like I was with a client on Tuesday and we were talking about insulin. So one of his beliefs was that he shouldn't he shouldn't eat frequently and he shouldn't eat carbs because he'd get these insulin spikes and that would be really bad for fat storage. And I said to him, have you ever actually read about insulin? Have you ever, and this is where my biochemistry degree comes in real handy. Like, have you ever really like looked at what insulin is? And he's like, well, no, not really. I just hear it from the, di- you know, from the diabetic point of view and sugar and, and fat, fat, you know, fat accumulation. I was like, you do realize that insulin is a, is a hormone and actually it's a really important satiety hormone. So, you know, like when we eat insulin, 
you know, is released to bring our glucose down. But as insulin is high, it's telling the rest of the body that actually I'm, I'm good, thanks, I'm full. Right? Like that's the bit that people don't always realize is that the, all the hormones work interactively together and, and we dumb science down so much. I don't say not, not we, not you and I, but, but generally science is dumbed down so much. that And it's often because people don't understand it. You know, the people that are promoting these big messages don't really get it. Um, and I guess that's something that does does annoy me because, you know, we've always talked about the fact that actually I've got three degrees. Um, so I've worked really hard to understand it. And, I, you know, I do lots of other modules alongside to make sure that I'm always on top of my game. And I don't think you ever get on top of your game. I think you're always learning, which is really important. Um, so I think beliefs can come, a lot of it comes from media and are created. And the problem with a belief is, it's the information you're taking in and it becomes this belief. And then with a belief, you're constantly reminding yourself of it. It's constantly playing in your head. That's bad for me, that's bad for me, that's bad for me, that's bad for me. And if that's happening, it then becomes your truth. And when it becomes your truth, your reality, it doesn't matter what everybody else is saying because it feels so incredibly real to you that trying to step away from that feels incredibly uncomfortable and very, very angst-ridden. And that's where the problems lie. And there are some situations, I've had situations more recently where there is a lot of anxiety around food and it has come from childhood experiences of food. Um, and I guess that's it, like every case is so different. You know, like if I talk about my own experience of an eating disorder, it happened because I, you know, I had to, I, I had, um, experience of sexual abuse and then really, really bad bullying when I was a kid because of my skin color. And, you know, all that narrative was very much, you're not good enough. You shouldn't be here. You're, you know, you're, you're a disappointment to us. Like there's a lot of that narrative going on. So mine was never about food. It was always about my perception of myself, but that perception of myself is kind of what I projected onto my body image and food. And that's kind of why mine developed when I was a teenager. But then I have individuals where, you know, it's it's completely different. It's it is it does develop from a difficult relationship with their their parents and and food when they were when they were kids and and what the association with that. So everybody is very very different, and it's quite hard to to kind of give general um, statements about you know. Is it you know what it what what causes an eating disorder? Because it's it's always different. But what I would say is very rarely about food. It's usually about something. It's usually about a belief about yourself that you don't want to handle, or, or some sort of trauma or discomfort that you don't want to deal with, and you run away from it. I think that's a, a beautiful sentiment about what you've said. Is what you keep telling yourself will eventually become a truth to yourself as well. It's a beautiful sentiment and I think it's it's very, very true. Um and I think whatever it is, it may not be exercise related, not be may not be physique related, it can be applied to anything. I know my thing was when I was in school I was told I wasn't very clever. I got tested for various different ADHD, all that kind of stuff. But it was just I didn't I, I had no interest in the topic. But they thought it, they wanted to put a label on it and put me somewhere else. But it was itchy but now it's like whatever. 12 years later or whatever it may be now a degree a master's a nutritionist whatever it may be but it's literally just find what works for you 
um, and being able to there like there is there is light at the end of the tunnel and it's important to kind of potentially reach out for the, to those like yourself to potentially reach out to mental health professionals if it is something that you are really really struggling with and I don't think enough people reach out to those that can help I think a lot of us kind of bottle things up and then something has to give or something has to like the health or whatever may like has to stop or whatever it may be before we can do something um, so it's important to, to reach out to those um, the last question that I'm going to ask that wasn't necessarily on the questions that I sent over to you <laughs> if there was one thing in the fitness industry or the nutrition industry what would it that you would change what would it be and why Oh my God, that's a tough <laughs> question to just land on me like that. Um, but you know what? I think just more, more regulation, I think. Like, I think that from my point of view, you know, I would never, ever, even though, believe it or not, I've actually got a fitness um, instructor qualification because I did that as a bit of a, oh, I think I'll do this and maybe I'll go down that road, but then decided I didn't want to go down that road. But that was a few years ago now, and I just, I wouldn't even think of myself as qualified like that. You know, I would never, ever stray out of my lane, ever. Like, I think even within even within nutrition, so maybe this is my thing, is that I know that this has been talked about before, but I think it's knowing your, your boundaries of, you know, of your scope of practice. Like even within the nutrition world, I've told you I've come from a, you know, like a complete clinical background, then gone into sport, and I've got loads of experience, loads of experience. But even now when people contact me, I had somebody the other day contact me and said, you know, I've got this condition, um, I need some support with my nutrition. And I just said, you know what, I'm really sorry, guys, but to be fair, I haven't worked in that field for about, you know, for over 10 years and it's not my place to start working in it now. Like, I'm really comfortable with saying, um, I, I, I can't do that. I'm really, really comfortable with it. I don't have any issues with saying it's not my area of expertise. And even when people come to me about, say, you know, like running or coaching, I'm like, it's not my area. I might have my own knowledge because I, I do my own running and I have coaches and, and whatever else, but I would never dream of giving that advice out I know what my area of expertise is and what my niche is and I stick to it and I wish more more nutrition and fitness instructors would do the same to be fair I would have to agree with you I think like I have no intention of ever working with the likes of bodybuilders or anything like that I have no I, I can't I, I haven't done it myself so I can't go up and say this is how I've done it I've, I've lost weight and that's from most people at some time in their life they want to lose weight and if I can kind of help someone point them in that direction that's my lane I'm not going to go any other direction like you wouldn't go to a surgeon asking for financial advice yeah. so why would you go to a PT or a I don't know uh, like a PT for kind of like medical advice on something else like a PT's like there's so much resources out there but a lot of people have various different ailments they have a lot of psychological things going on as well but they also have a lot of um issues with uh, movement uh, so it's important to be able to have a referral scheme as well so the point of having a physio to go to saying this is your person and you never know they may refer clients to you if you refer clients to them 
and it's important to have that kind of referral system that you can kind of go to and i'm very lucky that i've got three or four people in the industry and instagram has been amazing for that and social media has been amazing for that that if i am unsure about then i can just pop them a text and jump on a call and it's it's, it's it is amazing so don't be afraid to reach out so i'm delighted you brought that up um so Rene, thank you so much for coming on. So what is coming up next for you with any talks, any more podcasts or what's coming up? Uh, so at the moment, uh, what's coming up? Obviously, we've got the Train Brave podcast, um, which has been going now for six weeks, I think. <laughs> I can't remember. It's gone so fast. Uh, six or seven weeks. And we've got uh, another three in this series. And then we'll be starting series two hopefully when i come back from nepal if i get to go that's the the, the kind of plan um talks wise um there are a few coming up i'm obviously at um the food medics um future oh, food hazel, yeah perfect yeah. Uh, so I'm, on, I'm presenting there um, on the Saturday at 1.30, talking about like the medical and nutritional intervention in uh, REDS. So I'll be doing that. Um, and then there are some, um, I'm at Love Trails Festival, so if anybody likes running and, um, uh, and, and, and basically having a good time, <laughs> then come along to Love Trails because I will be there. I was there last year and... Uh, a bit worse for wear doing my talks but it was all fun um so yeah that will be good um and i think at the moment that's pretty much it like there's a, there's a few bits and pieces coming up um there's the potential of a new book but that's all kind of still kind of working on that at the moment mainly it's just clinic 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 because there's just so many people so um yeah that's kind of where we're at at the moment Rene, I have to say I've absolutely like we were talk we've been talking for nearly an hour, but the one thing that you mentioned very early on in the podcast was about empathy and that's not a bad thing. So keep that empathy going and whatever you're doing, the message that you've got going at the minute, keep going, keep plugging away. You've got books out and I'm gonna link in with the books on the the little write up and stuff like that where people can kinda potentially purchase those if they're interested definitely give Renee a follow she's incredible she's one of the industry leaders that a lot of the guys I, I've spoken to are really excited to listen to this so Renee, thank you so much for coming on today I really really appreciate it oh thank you and thank you for your kind words that's really nice it's uh, nice to know that I'm respected by other good nutritionists that always always puts a smile on my face so <laughs> thank you thank you very much <laughs>